This will appear as the third episode of the Political Dominoes podcast, with the first two being of a different kind of nature. The first two are a part of a multi-part series we're doing here on a time period in Chinese history known as the Century of Humiliation. Now, if you're interested in contemporary Chinese politics or the, the fascinating medley of different political ideas that get thrown around in China in the beginning of the 20th century, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those. But today's episode is going to be quite a bit different. It's going to be something I'd like to do more frequently, and this would be to dive into the kind of story that is largely ignored, yet is consequential. The kind of story that is ignored by, you know, let's use a phrase that I don't particularly like, but the mainstream media. I think this is a phrase that is used far too often to malign media outlets. There's nothing wrong with being mainstream as long as mainstream includes, you know, all of the things we want out of our journalists. Objectivity, fairness, and the reporting of all the facts on the ground. Now, today, this isn't going to be a story that I think the mainstream media has intentionally colluded to ignore. Now, in fact, I'll be quoting stories and articles from what anyone would call mainstream media outlets. I think this is just the type of thing that doesn't capture people's interest because of the way it gets explained. It's not really woven into a fabric that most people can put on for themselves, that most people can incorporate into their you know, base-level understanding of global politics. What I'm going to be talking about today is not the typical Russia story that you'll be hearing on most days in you know, the American mainstream media, let's say. This is going to be the kind of Russia story that is not Putin and Trump in the summer of 2016, but Putin, Russia, and gasoline. And maybe a good way to start off would be to latch on to something that you know, most media outlets would. This would be Vladimir Putin's recent trip to Austria. And this occurred on Tuesday of this past week. And why might this be interesting? You know, for someone who's not following Austrian politics, recently Austria got a new coalitional government. One split between a far-right party as described by most media outlets and a center-right party. To take a description found in the Financial Times from December 17th, 2017, this is an article written by Ralph Adkins, and Marine Khan. They write, quote, Austria's far-right Nationalist Freedom Party will control several powerful ministries when the country's new government is sworn in on Monday, after it struck a coalition deal that will significantly toughen Vienna's stance on immigration and asylum seekers. It continues, In a breakthrough for the Eurosceptic Freedom Party, it will govern together with the center-right People's Party of the 31-year-old Chancellor-elect Sebastian Kurz. The Freedom Party will take control of defense, interior, and foreign ministries, while its leader, Heinz Christian Strach, who has warned of Austria's Islamification, will become vice chancellor. End quote. So, Euroscepticism and warning of the Islamification of Austria, well, yeah, these are you know, two factors, at least, that would bring attention to media outlets in the West, you know, in America. We're seeing a similar direction from the President of the United States currently, Donald Trump, someone who has warned of 
Muslim immigration and who has played on much of the fears of the electorate and, and his supporters of, you know, I don't think anyone is really fearing the Islamification of the United States quite yet, but certainly playing off the fears that have been entrenched since 9-11 has, you know, captivated Trump's audience. And beyond just the fear of Muslim immigration, we also have this idea of Euroscepticism running through the Freedom Party. This is the base level aversion to the EU. The idea that the EU doesn't have Austria's best interest in mind. And this Euroscepticism demonstrated by Austria's Freedom Party, now ascendant in Austrian politics, should play on the recent fears that EU nations who haven't left yet might have. Right, we just had Brexit recently, somewhat recently, and further fears of a Grexit. That is Greece exiting the EU, given its you know, financial turmoil over the past few years. And there's more about the current political situation in Austria and Putin's visit there that would play well in most media circles. And in, you know, in order to investigate this, I'm just going to go ahead and read more of this Financial Times article. The authors continue, quote, the party's Russia links, it has close ties with United Russia, the party of Vladimir Putin, could further raise concerns among Western allies, for instance, over intelligence sharing, end quote. And these close links are a reference to a deal signed by Putin's United Russia party and Strach's Freedom Party in Austria. This deal was signed in 2016, and it's this loose agreement that's non-legally binding that says the two sides will meet regularly to discuss business opportunities and you know, economic ideas that could both enhance Austria and Russia's economic situation. And there's one more titillating aspect of this Financial Times article that I'd like to cover before we move on to the whole Putin, gasoline, and Europe situation that's at the heart of this podcast today. And that's the fact that the Austrian Freedom Party was founded by a former Nazi, a former SS officer and Nazi minister of agriculture named Anton Reinthaler. And when Reinthaler leaves the party, it's taken over by another SS officer. And before our fears rise to the level of insanity, we should point out that throughout the 60s and 70s, the Freedom Party had done a lot to shed its Nazi elements. Some of these groups broke off themselves and founded their own parties. In the 90s, it had done some work to rid itself of the more you know, anti-Semitic notes within the party. And if you know, Strach had something to do with this as well, he has been considered someone who's helped give the party a nice, somewhat liberal makeover. Despite this turn away from Nazism, however, uh, I think that the pro-democratic, democratic in the way that Americans tend to understand the word, and the more liberal elements of my audience should appreciate the pointing out of these ugly roots within the Freedom Party, even if some of those roots have been cut. And so this deal between you know, Austria's now ascendant Freedom Party and Putin's United Russia Party exacerbates some fears that EU members have of Putin doing more of the same that he's done in the United States and that he's done in France and that he's suspected of doing all across the globe. And this begins to bring us towards something that is rampant 
throughout American mainstream media, and for a good reason. Not to say that all of the coverage has been good. I'll get right to it. We're talking about fake news. And to keep this fake news digression short, perhaps perhaps we'll do some sort of episode on that later, it's not just in America. It's not just in the United States. If you're paying attention to European politics, you'll notice a lot of the discord that's being experienced in the states that was experienced throughout the 2016 presidential election. In fact, some of the similarities in France are downright eerie. Marine Le Pen accused of being assisted by nefarious Russian agents and and Russian funds also. You know, in her election against uh, Emmanuel Macron, the current president of France, during their runoff, Macron had his emails leaked, much like Hillary Clinton did. Not necessarily to the same effect, though, as we said, Macron now holds that seat in France. The Swedish and the German governments, well, they've both complained publicly about potential cyber attacks meant to influence elections in those two countries, and the propaganda, the disorienting propaganda, because to say it's strictly right-wing, I think, misses some of the point. I think the idea here, and this is what Germany's spy chief pointed out, it's that it's more just to sow the seeds of discontent with the current government and to divide populations, to push them to one extreme or the other. Because at both extremes, on the far right and the far left in Europe at the moment, you'll see a dissatisfaction with the EU. European skepticism. This is going to be part of what we're going to talk about today that, uh, that benefits Vladimir Putin to such a degree that it can't be ignored. That if we're going to look at whatever Russia does, we have to have in the background this idea of disorienting the European Union. Because Putin has a clear objective here in disorienting the European Union. The objective is to settle, if not eliminate, these sanctions that have been held against him since his invasion of the Ukraine. And I left the Ukraine off of that list, but if you're going to look at where fake news has penetrated thought markets the most... We're going to see the nations that surround Russia being inundated by news you'd thought you'd read on Sputnik or RT or any of these other outlets that Russia can use to, like I said, disorient the European nations that surround it and the European nations that could stand together and uphold the sanctions against Russia. Wherever Putin notices a financial crisis or or social tensions emerging, any nation that is becoming more and more fearful of immigration will see Putin try to disorient it further. He'd like to rid himself of these sanctions, and one of the ways he'll do it is by disrupting the EU. He'll use this information warfare to promote Euroscepticism, like we see the Freedom Party doing, and to promote the fears that many people have of the current immigration situation in Europe. While the fears of EU leaders who are still pro-Russia sanctions, while they were realized during this visit, taking from a Guardian article authored by Philip Alterman and Sean Walker just a couple of days ago on Tuesday, June the 5th, they write, quote, 
Vladimir Putin lobbied for the phasing out of economic sanctions and dodged questions about the shooting down of flight MH17 during his first visit to an EU member state since being re-elected as Russian president in March. The article then continues with Putin's commenting on the situation. Putin said the following, quote, Both those who initiate these actions and those such measures that we call sanctions are aimed against find them harmful, Putin said in Vienna on Tuesday, claiming that European countries were merely, quote, finding it hard to say so, end quote. So perhaps it was lost on you at first. It it was on me when I initially read that Putin quote. But what he's saying is that, look, Russians find this harmful, these economic sanctions levied by the EU, and so do other Europeans who are levying these sanctions. And what exactly might he be getting at? Well, more on that in a moment. First, I'd like to read another passage from this article that concerns itself with the Austrian Chancellor, Sebastian Kurz, who is, you know, he is the center-right member of this government, you know, member of the head of this government. The article continues, quote, The Austrian Chancellor, Sebastian Kurz, said diplomatic progress in eastern Ukraine, followed by a, quote, gradual easing of sanctions, end quote, imposed after Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014, was the, quote, scenario we are wishing for, end quote. So the first thing that, you know, rings problematic to my ear is that the Freedom Party signs a deal with Vladimir Putin's party, The Freedom Party ascends to high posts in government and then pushes the center-right party in Austria towards the easing of sanctions against Russia. This is what the EU is fearful of at this moment in history, that Russia is going to use its tentacles on the internet and, and, and social media to push parties in one direction where the parties that they can affect will be forced to follow. The People's Freedom Party gets power, now running on a much more far-right agenda, and now it pushes the other parties in Austria in their direction if they'd like to capture the necessary votes. With that in mind, it's interesting to find Heinz Christian Strach, that is the Freedom Party's leader, it's interesting to take his quote on the matter. He said the following, quote, It is high time to put an end to these exasperating sanctions and normalize political and economic relations with Russia. End quote. A bit more straight to the point than Sebastian Kurz's conservative party in their stance on the matter. Kurz has continually stressed that you know, their pro-EU stance won't be changing. So these are the rational concerns that EU members have of Putin's influence in Austria, and it's a blueprint for what Putin might try to do elsewhere. He might keep pushing this a bit further and further down the line. If you're going to look at a, at a political spectrum, he's going to push it to the extremes as to, to take a word from the Freedom Party's leader to exasperate the political situation in various European countries. This is the obvious concern of EU nations. But let's go back for a second and think about what Putin said about the European nations who levy the sanctions against Russia, thinking that there's a problem with these sanctions, even if they won't publicly say so, like some members of the Austrian government will, and Russians noticing the problem with these sanctions. 
These sanctions affect Russia's oil exports and gas exports. And these are exports which other European nations have quite a bit of interest in. European nations that you might not expect to be so beholden to Russia's energy output. For starters, Austria is one of them. And on this trip, Putin hammered out a deal with the Austrian government until 2040 concerning the exportation of gas to that nation. The Moscow Times, in conjunction with Reuters, reported on this deal. They said the following, quote, The deal was signed on the day of Russian President Vladimir Putin's visit to Vienna in what was his first trip to the West since visiting Finland in mid-2017 and being elected earlier this year. The previous gas deal with Austria was set to expire in 2028. Last year, Gazprom increased gas supplies to Austria by more than 50%, to 9 billion cubic meters. In 2018, Russian gas exports to Austria climbed by an additional 70% between January and mid-May as compared to the same period in 2017. End quote. So to the outside observer, it seems impossible to fail to notice that as Austria takes this turn towards its pro-Russia stance on, on EU sanctions, it's also incorporating into its economy billions of cubic tons of gasoline. And from a percentage standpoint, we've seen an explosion there in the amount of Russian gas that country is taking in. So maybe Putin is correct to some degree to say that European nations levying these sanctions against Russia are sort of only hurting themselves. The Freedom Party's Strach, he agreed. From a financial standpoint, this seems true. But for someone who wants to actually stop Russia from you know, future invasions of sovereign nations, well, this isn't exactly the route to go down. Are you going to be beholden to Russian gas to the point where you start allowing them to invade the countries? that the Soviet Union terrorized for decades. Is that going to be what, what causes a nation to cave? This becomes more and more scary as you start to realize where exactly Russian gas is going to and the projects that are up ahead for nations like Germany. Germany is set to help Russia lay down a giant pipeline in the Baltic Sea. A pipeline laid down by Gazprom. This is the company that struck the deal with Austria that we just discussed. And the German deal is even bigger. And I mean bigger in at least two senses. One being a reference to the sheer amount of money that is being exchanged in this deal. And then in the other sense, I mean it in terms of the unity of the European Union. In terms of, you know, when we reflect on the lack of commitment or commitment that we've seen from other you know, critical members of the EU when it comes to enforcing policy and, and NATO membership. This extends beyond the EU, of course. But when we take a step back and look at what it takes to build a bulwark against Russian influence in European politics, well, Germany has to be a key member in whatever strategy Western European nations come up with. And I mentioned this deal between Austria and Russia involving Gazprom. And this company will also be at the heart of this Germany deal. It produces 
more gasoline than any other company on the planet and beats out its you know, number one competitor, ExxonMobil, who's number two on that you know, worldwide leaders in gasoline per day output list. It beats Exxon threefold, three times as much gasoline is produced by Gazprom every day than ExxonMobil. And if we're going to look at the total global supply, it's responsible for 11% of it. Could you find a better power source when it comes to playing international politics than energy? Well, it's, it's worked for Vladimir Putin in Russia quite well. He's been able to use Gazprom to topple political opponents and anyone who stands in the way of him reaching across Russian borders into the economic markets of Europe. As early as 2001, Vladimir Putin was using Gazprom to quell, you know, what, that, what is the heart of political dissent? Free speech and free press. Taking from an April 2001 BBC article, they write, quote, A battle for control of Russia's only nationwide independent television station, NTV, has been won by the state-dominated gas monopoly, sparking fears that media freedom has been dealt a serious blow. In a boardroom coup, the old NTV board was sacked by the gas firm Gazprom, which says it owns a controlling stake in the station. But NTV's original parent company, the Media Most Empire, run by tycoon Vladimir Gusinsky, says the meeting was illegal, and the new board appointed by Gazprom has no legitimacy. The fate of NTV, which frequently criticizes the government, is being seen as a key indicator of free speech in Russia. Thousands have attended the street protests to support its independence. And ex-president Mikhail Gorbachev has accused the Kremlin of trying to silence it. Mr. Gatsinsky himself remains in Spain, where he is locked in an extradition battle over what he says are politically motivated charges against him. End quote. Gatsinsky would evade extradition from Spain, and he'd also evade the attempt by the Russian government to get him extradited from Greece a couple years later. And just some background here, Gusinski had already been targeted by Putin and jailed in the year 2000 for his dissenting opinions against the Kremlin. Now, that, that wasn't exactly how it was written up on court documents. Gusinski was being arrested for you know, misappropriation of funds, but when asked of this matter, Vladimir Putin stated that you know, he had no control over it. This is the Russian attorney general's job, or, or what would be the equivalent of the attorney general in Russia. In the same BBC article just quoted, NTV journalists released a joint statement on the matter. And their opinion about Putin's influence on all of this is quite a bit different. They stated the following. We understand that the ultimate goal of this meeting is the imposing of full political control over us, said the statement. This meeting referenced here is, is pointing to a shareholders meeting taking place soon after the coup. They continue. We do not doubt that Vladimir Putin, as in the past, knows about what is happening and bears responsibility for the consequences. End quote. Just a couple of years later, Vladimir Putin was able to use Gazprom to sack another, both economic opponent of Gazprom, and a political opponent of Vladimir Putin, Mikhail Khodorkovsky. And Khodorkovsky ran Yukos Oil, which was you know, another major oil power in Russia. And he was also a rich political dissenter. In February of 2003, 
Khodorkovsky had publicly argued against Putin and debated him on the corruption rampant through Russian politics. Just months later, Khodorkovsky is arrested and jailed, and his influence on Russian politics subsided. The Council of Europe, a pro-human rights and watch group, the leading one on the European continent, commented in 2009 in a report on this Yukos oil fiasco. They stated the following, quote, The Yukos affair epitomizes this authoritarian abuse of the system. I wish to recall here the excellent work done by the rapporteur of the Committee on Legal Affairs and Human Rights in her first two reports on the subject. I do not intend to comment on the ins and outs of this case, which saw Yukos, a privately owned oil company, made bankrupt and broken up for the benefit of the state-owned company Rosneft. The assets were bought at an auction by a rather obscure financial group for almost 7 billion euros. It is still not known who is behind this financial group. A number of experts believe that the state-owned company Gazprom had a hand in the matter. End quote. Domestic Russian politics aside, Gazprom and Putin have also been able to work together to squeeze the Ukraine, both for political reasons and for economic reasons. Back in 2009, you know, as gas and oil prices were falling throughout Europe and as the winter was approaching, and also at the same time as Ukraine was beginning to seek membership in NATO, Putin had Gazprom cut off the supply to Europe. Looking back through the New York Times archives, one can find on January 6, 2009, an Andrew Kramer article entitled Russia Cuts Gas and Europe Shivers. He wrote the following, quote, Gazprom, the Russian gas monopoly, halted nearly all of its natural gas exports to Europe on Tuesday, sharply escalating its pricing dispute with neighboring Ukraine. The cutoff led to immediate shortages from France to Turkey and underscored Moscow's increasingly confrontational posture towards the West. Across Europe, countries reported precipitous drops in gas pressure in their pipelines at the peak of the winter heating season in a bitterly cold January. In one sign of the extent of the shutoff, Ukraine's president, Viktor A. Yushchenko, said Gazprom intended to halt all shipments passing through his country, which accounted for 80% of Russian gas exports to Europe. Europe, in turn, depends on Russia for 40% of its imported fuel. While each side blamed the other for the scope of the latest drop in gas shipments, Russia's Prime Minister Vladimir V. Putin had personally announced Monday evening on state television that he was ordering a sharp reduction in gas flows, saying Ukraine was siphoning gas from the pipelines without paying. For Putin, the escalation comes at a perilous time, as slumping energy prices threaten the fiscal health and political stability that have underpinned his popularity at home. Some analysts of Russian politics had expected Mr. Putin to become more conciliatory as energy prices fell. Instead, he has taken a hard line in seeking to raise gas prices in Ukraine and perhaps create panic buying on the international market, where prices of natural gas and oil, Russia's leading exports, have fallen sharply in recent months. End quote. So by withholding fuel at opportune moments, if we're going to talk about opportune moments per year, in the winter, in the cold winter of Europe, you're going to stop all fuel exports going to Western Europe. That's a lot of power to have. 
That is something that you'd think Western European nations would see and you know, alter their stance on. And that's something that they have said that they would do. Part of what the EU wants to do, if they're going to be able to levy sanctions against Russia, and also help the environment, this is another aspect of the deals that Russia is signing with Austria, and, and like the deal with Germany, that don't worry, I'll get to it. That's another part of this, the fact that the European Union seems very intent, if we're going to put any faith into the Paris climate deal, they seem intent on helping the environment and, and looking for alternative energy sources. Well, not only are they failing to do so, the gas deals between European nations have, have risen over the past few years. Not only have they done that, they've been getting it from the most disruptive political body on the continent at the moment. At the moment being, yes, in 2009 when this article I just quoted was written, and also today in 2018. Let's take a look at where European nations are getting their gas from. As one might expect, the nations bordering Russia tend to receive more than the nation and a bit more west. Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Belarus, these types of nations receive almost all of their gas from Russia. They're on the border, they're smaller, weaker, former Soviet states. Heading even further west, we'll see Poland, Austria, Hungary, Greece, they're going to be receiving more than half of their gas and fuel from Russia. And then with Germany, France, and Italy not that far behind, all three of those nations receive anywhere from 20 to 50% of their energy, their gas, from Russia. And with Gazprom being the state-owned monopoly responsible for the gas exports, you have to know that Putin's hand is in all of this, that you know, if there's going to really be someone stopping energy output into Western Europe, it's going to be through this one company that owns nearly all the gas, that has three times as much as its next worldwide competitor does. And I think this all sets the stage nicely for this problem with Germany's dependence on Russian gas. I think it sets the stage quite well. What we've really come here to talk about today is something called the Nord Stream 2 Pipeline. And you're not going to find me being one of those, you know, anti-pipeline sort of fundamentalists where I think that all pipelines are somehow linked to, you know, political corruption or, or laundering or, or anything like that. No. But when it comes from the source of political chaos and a country is actively pumping money into what we know to be one of Putin's greatest arms, one of his greatest weapons, well, then I have a problem with it. At the same time as Angela Merkel seems to be pressuring Russia, just expelled Russian diplomats after their recent you know, chemical attack on a citizen abroad. This you know, occurred in England a few months ago. But just a day after, a day after these diplomats were expelled, Germany gave the go-ahead for Russia and Gazprom to build that Nord Stream 2 pipeline through its waters. And... The construction of this pipeline will have a number of deleterious effects for the Ukraine and other Baltic states, which won't anymore get to enjoy, because you have to remember, this pipeline cuts right through the Baltic Sea. You're not going to have to go through the Ukraine or any of these other states in order to export gas to Western Europe if you're Gazprom. And Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany, it, it, not as if she doesn't know this, 
Or, and it's not as if she wants more Russian influence on Germany or the EU. It's simply that American gas is far more expensive. Their other option, Western Europe's other option. So they're going to turn to Russia. And in the process, they're going to deplete Ukraine's economy of at least 2% of its annual revenue, its gross GDP. The other Baltic states are going to suffer nearly as much as well. And for those of you who are you know, essentialist free marketers, for lack of a better term, well, I understand your immediate complaints. Well, if Russia, if Gazprom, has a more efficient way of delivering its product to its buyer, how are you going to step in and say, well, no, this is a uh, improper contract? Just because both sides agree that it's best for their interests? Well, no, it's worse for the overall political setting in Europe. No, you're not allowed to do that. This is not what Western economic norms include. And to some degree, I can't complain about that sentiment. I can't sit here in any way and, and say that, you know, if both parties agree on a contract, on a deal, that it should be made invalid by parties who have nothing to do with the deal. Who are we to step in and say anything? Well, when one of those partners in the deal is also a partner with other nations who are on the receiving end of Russian tentacles, like I've said, if Russia is going to be involved in the social media disruption and in the political disruption, I don't know where you can draw that line. To be sympathetic to Germany, it gets all of its gas nearly from outside sources. And if Russia is going to be the main one, it's got to maintain that position until they find another way. But that's not what the Nord Stream 2 is. The Nord Stream 2 pipeline is amping up what has already been the situation in Germany. It's not a move towards a cleaner source of energy. It's not a move away from a politically coercive actor. Just as Russia begins using chemical weapons on foreign soil, well, yeah, Merkel's going to turn around and expel some diplomats, which is also going to allow for this pipeline to be built. Sort of pulling the hood over political observers. How might this look to Eastern European nations who are going to be bypassed by the Nord Stream 2 pipeline? And how big is this pipeline? Well, to get into it, we're going to head into a Politico-EU article authored by Anka Gerzu. My apologies to the author and the butchering of her name, I'm sure. But this article is entitled, Germany's Double Gas Game with Russia. And to look at the stance and the situation for Central European nations, well, she writes the following, quote, Poland, the Baltics, and some other Eastern European countries have been desperately trying to block the construction of Nord Stream 2. They fear the pipeline, meant to carry 55 billion cubic meters of gas a year from Russia to Germany under the Baltic Sea, would concentrate a huge chunk of Russian gas exports to Europe through one route and leave them vulnerable to Russia's geopolitical pressure. However, the author then goes on to relate some of the reasoning inside Germany, inside German politics, for why this actually might be beneficial to bringing Russia to a more Western European style of democracy. The article continues, quote, 
What drives the support of Berlin's political establishment for Nord Stream 2 is a conviction that tethering Germany's energy needs with Russia's economy is the best way to forestall a deeper conflict. Such thinking, widespread in Berlin's foreign policy establishment, is influenced by the legacy of Ostpolitik, the policy of detente that characterized Western Germany's approach to the Soviet Union beginning in the 1970s. Many Germans credit the policy with both ending the Cold War and for creating the conditions that led to German reunification. Germany's support for Nord Stream 2 has been Gazprom's biggest asset in pushing forward with its plans in the face of resistance from the European Commission and many other EU countries. End quote. So this idea that an economic bridge can be built in which politics you know, can walk across, maybe that's an analogy that might work for this situation, that idea might hold some merit, but I think it begins to break down once we consider the reach and power that Gazprom has. I'm going to reiterate it one more time at least, that Gazprom outproduces ExxonMobil, its leading global competitor, threefold. This fact, when you conjoin it with some of the business practices and intimidation tactics that Gazprom has been accused of involving itself in, this is what brought forth an antitrust case against Gazprom by the European Commission. And more on that in a moment after we finish off discussing what exactly Germany's role in this whole thing might be. If Gazprom has this much control over the European gas market, well, Germany being its big buyer, well, they might still not really have the power to pull back and get Gazprom and therefore Russia to you know, begin leveling itself out with the economic norms of the rest of the world, well, it might not have that ability anymore if Gazprom is as powerful as it seems to be. And this is something that Andrew Rettman touched on in his article from April 12th from the EU Observer entitled, EU Documents Lay Bare Russian Energy Abuse. And he's referring to documents leaked from the EU Commission that, you know, get into the details of this antitrust dispute with Gazprom. It seems as if some things are being ignored by the EU Commission. He writes the following, quote, Russian firm Gazprom has been strangling EU energy markets for years, documents show, as the European Commission takes aim at its new pipeline Nord Stream 2. The Russian firm's abusive practices were highlighted in internal commission documents, which came to light on Tuesday, the 10th of April, pertaining to a seven-year-old antitrust dispute. He then continues, quote, They included a five-page annex entitled Preliminary Assessment of the Commitments Proposed by Gazprom. The objections document said the Russian firm had hindered cross-border sales of gas in Bulgaria, the Czech Republic, Estonia, Hungary, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and Slovakia. It said the, quote, purpose was to segment the internal market along national borders, end quote, so that Gazprom could impose, quote, unfair pricing in the region. It also said the Russian company had, quote, leveraged its dominance by conditioning gas supplies on obtaining certain non-related commitments, end quote, from clients. For instance, by forcing Poland to yield control of the Amal gas pipeline in Northern Europe. The annex detailed how Gazprom used destination clauses, re-export bans, restrictions on metering stations, and refusals to change delivery points to, quote, segment, end quote, the EU states. 
It said Denmark, Finland, Italy, and the Netherlands had also suffered from significantly excessive prices, but said the commission had decided to exclude this from its antitrust proceeding. End quote. Thankfully, the last part of that quote seems to be called into question by what the EU commission actually ended up doing. They did seem to address some of these you know, restrictions on what you can do with Russian gas once you get it. They ruled on this antitrust proceeding, not in a way that satisfied everyone. Uh, the title of the Financial Times article, which I'd like to quote in order to explain the developments here, is entitled, Russia's Gazprom Dodges Fine in EU Antitrust Settlement. However, the EU Commission did address what you can do with Russian gas once you get it. Gazprom settles with the EU Commission after seven years of investigations, and the new deal looks like this. Quoting from May 24th, 2018, this is the Financial Times and writer Rochelle Toplensky. She writes, quote, By settling, Gazprom has acknowledged EU jurisdiction of its contracts with member states and has committed to the following. Remove contractual barriers to the sale of gas across borders and give control of Bulgarian gas transmission infrastructure to the domestic operator. Virtually connect the isolated gas markets of Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania by allowing Hungary, Poland, Slovakia, Bulgaria, and the Baltic states to choose to have their gas delivered to one of these countries. End quote. So here are some measures taken by the EU to alleviate some of the problems that the Ukraine and the states that receive you know, most of their gas from Russia have in turning around and exporting it again. So they've sort of loosened the reins that Gazprom might have on the countries around them and you know, their energy supply. However, the result of this seven-year antitrust dispute between the EU and Gazprom, well, you know, this resolution handed down at the end of it, that's not going to do much for the states that are getting bypassed by this Nord Stream 2 pipeline that's going to fuel Germany for years, for decades. It's going to still bypass the Ukraine. They're still going to have 2% of their annual GDP cut. And you have to also wonder, you know, the pipelines going through the Baltic, how those are going to be affected as well. Those are still going to, maybe not at the rate of the Ukraine, Maybe they won't have their GDP cut 2%, but they're still going to notice that their ability to transport Russian gas to other countries is going to be severely bypassed by the pipeline. These EU sanctions don't do anything about the Nord Stream 2, and this brings you back to the free market argument that I laid out earlier. If they have a more efficient way of moving gas, how are you supposed to tell them they can't? other than putting pressure through you know, the political channels that one might, the political channels that some U.S. senators have been using recently. In March, 39 U.S. senators published a letter that they sent to Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, and it is a strong condemnation of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and, and what it means for European energy. I'm going to go ahead and read at, at some length this letter published by 39 U.S. senators from both sides of the aisle. They write the following to Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Quote, Dear Secretary Mnuchin and Deputy Secretary Sullivan, 
we write to express our concern about the continuing development of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that would carry natural gas from Russia to Germany. We oppose Nord Stream 2 and urge the administration to utilize all the tools at its disposal to prevent its construction. Senior-level outreach by both of you to the leaders of the European Union nations affected by and involved with this disastrous proposal is critical to ensuring Nord Stream 2 is not completed. Nord Stream 2, which follows the route of the Nord Stream 1 pipeline from Russia across the Baltic Sea to Germany, will make American allies and partners in Europe more susceptible to Moscow's coercion and malign influence. The pipeline would be a step backwards in the diversification of Europe's energy sources, suppliers, and routes. This expensive and unnecessary project would force Gazprom's customers to pay for a project that would further reinforce Russia's near monopoly as a natural gas supplier to the region. European consumers would be paying Russia to divert its gas exports away from Ukraine with no benefit to anyone but Gazprom. As a result, Europe would have less money to invest in real energy diversity projects, forcing continued dependence on Russia for its energy needs. So let me pause for a moment and point out that I really like this letter so far. I think it touches on many of the things we've touched on throughout this entire podcast today. We talk about the need for Europe to diversify its energy sources, the need to get off Whatever train is heading towards more Russian influence, i.e. for Germany with this Nord Stream 2 pipeline, that's at the heart of this, this letter sent to Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. However, I think this letter might travel into some unwarranted territory, maybe some territory that's not quite justified or can't be justifiable if you're you know, sitting in Germany's seat right now. Because when it gets into this idea of this pipeline being unnecessary and, and costly, well, yeah, it certainly is costly. We're talking about billions and billions of euros being spent on this project between Germany and, and between Russia. However, at the same time, I still fail to believe that Germany wants Russia to have more and more influence over its markets and, and over its energy sourcing. So I'm not prepared to sit here and say that Germany has wandered into this deal without really considering the ramifications and also without considering how much money it would have to pay to another source of gas. If they wanted to pay for liquefied natural gas that Americans produce, that many have a hand in producing in the states that the senators come from that authored this letter. And I'll get to that in a moment after I'm done reading. Back to the letter, quote, We are concerned that the Nord Stream 2 would undermine the economy of Ukraine and other gas transit countries in Central Europe by allowing Russia to reduce or even cut off gas supplies to those countries with impunity. Let me stop real quick for a moment here, too. If we remember back to the New York Times article we read from 2009, where Russia is accusing Ukraine of siphoning gas, so they cut off gas supplies that run through the Ukraine into the rest of Europe. This was as the winter was turning in 2009, as, uh, as gas was ever more important to heating European houses, Russia pulled the plug. And they blamed the Ukraine. And the Ukraine turned around and said, well, we have nothing to do with this. A dispute like this is something that Russia could use to either play up this Nord Stream 2 pipeline, or it's something that other countries could use to say that, well, no, we need Russia away from our energy sources at all. 
because they were able to do this in the first place, whether or not it was the Ukraine's fault or whether it was Russia and Putin's fault. The letter published by the U.S. senators will get at sort of what I'm talking here, about how the Ukraine is a necessary aspect of Russian gas exports. In some ways, it holds Russia accountable, and it makes them you know, beholden to the EU, and it makes them balanced in some ways with the Ukraine. The letter continues, quote, By circumventing Ukraine, Nord Stream 2 will remove one of the biggest reasons for Russia to avoid large-scale conflicts in eastern Ukraine, as the Kremlin is well aware. Transporting Russian natural gas to European markets is critical to Ukraine's economy and provides Ukraine with important leverage in its relations with Russia. Nord Stream 2 would wholly undercut that leverage and increase Ukraine's vulnerability to Russia. For too long, European nations have been held hostage to Russian political pressure on a whole host of issues due to their dependence on Gazprom to deliver gas needed to keep their people warm throughout the winter. The best way to guarantee Europe's long-term economic health and independence is to enable and support investment in a variety of energy sources, suppliers, and routes to meet Europe's needs and to force Gazprom to negotiate as a market actor and not a monopolist. Skipping further ahead, the letter begins to go into some of the measures taken, some of the tangible measures taken by the current administration to put pressure on EU countries participating in this deal and Russia. It continues, quote, Through the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, CAATSA, and related efforts, Congress continues to send clear, bipartisan, and unambiguous signals to the administration and to the world that we support efforts to counter Russian malign influence. Russia's efforts are designed and intended only to damage U.S. interests and influence, but also to harm our allies and partners. Russia continues to undermine the rule of law and any institution that gets in the way of the Kremlin pursuing its aggressive and self-interested foreign policy. Section 232 of the CAATSA provides the administration with an additional tool to identify and sanction U.S. and foreign entities supporting or expanding Gazprom's near-monopolistic role in providing energy to U.S. allies. It is clear that the Kremlin uses Gazprom to exert unacceptable and divisive political pressure on sovereign European governments. Russia is attempting to use this influence to break transatlantic resolve on renewing sanctions intended to compel Russia to cease its illegal aggression in Ukraine and to live up to the Minsk commitments to which it has agreed but continues to violate. Congress intended CAATSA to be a tool for the administration to use in our efforts to support European energy security, and we encourage the administration to carefully examine how CAATSA sanctions can be used to meet that goal, end quote. So to me, this seems like a step in the right direction in terms of U.S. geopolitical strategy and in terms of bolstering the Ukraine's ability to counteract Putin's policy. But as I mentioned while I was reading that letter, there are some other interests at play outside of just geopolitical strategy. If you take a look at the 39 senators who you know, signed their name to this document I just read, you're going to notice some coherence between the states they represent and where U.S. natural gas comes from. If we look at the states who gain the most from U.S. gas exports 
and U.S. gas production, you know, Texas, Pennsylvania, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Wyoming, well, yeah, we're going to notice that their senators had a lot to do with this letter, both from Texas, one Pennsylvania senator, both from Oklahoma and Wyoming, and then one senator from Louisiana signed this proclamation. We can also notice that these states are all red states, all voted for Trump, and have historically leaned a bit towards the right. So it's no surprise that after this letter was written by these 39 U.S. senators, that Trump took it up and ran with it. State officials and diplomats have commented on this matter for Trump, largely, saying that you know sanctions will follow if Germany and Russia go ahead on this Gazprom deal. To which Russia has responded, saying that this is all really just the U.S. flexing their business interest muscles at us. That they're just upset that, you know, it's going to be Russian gas instead of U.S. gas making its way into the pipelines that flow into Western Europe. Well, this isn't really up for dispute, whether or not the U.S. is upset that it's Russian gas as opposed to U.S. gas. The real thing that can be argued here is whether or not this is U.S. political interest or economic interest, or if it's both, to what degree is it one or the other? And I think whatever side of this coin you might find yourself on reveals some level of cynicism. And I use the word cynicism here not to describe someone who is wrong-headed, but someone who takes into account different historical features of gas deals and U.S. economic interests as opposed to others. I don't believe that the U.S. is totally uninterested in checking Russian influence in Western Europe. I have to believe it, it is at the top of its list, at least in the minds of some U.S. politicians. But at the same time, if you look at our deals, our own gas deals with foreign nations, you're going to find us willing to cut some political and maybe even moral corners if you talk about how we've dealt in the Middle East over the past, I don't know, four, five decades at least. And just as the Trump administration is noticing what senators are stepping up to the table and you know, signing this letter, which is to condemn and is to promote the levying of sanctions against Russia and Gazprom, just as Trump is going to notice this and jump on board, Angela Merkel is going to notice historical dealings of the nations around her with their gas supply and whether or not taking Russian gas is worth it. Looking at an article published on SeekingAlpha.com by writer Tom Luongo, he goes into a situation that unfolded a few years ago in Bulgaria and the ramifications it had for Bulgarian politics once the U.S. stepped in and tried to halt Russian gas supplies going there. He writes the following, quote, Nord Stream 2 is too important politically to future Russian-European Union relations for it to fall apart at the last minute like South Stream did, after U.S. pressure on Bulgaria forced Russian President Vladimir Putin to pull the project and reroute it through Turkey, resurrected as Turkish Stream. That miscalculation cost Eastern Europe gas supplies it needed for growth as well as billions in transit fees for Bulgaria. That decision cost the Bulgarian government its rule, and today's leadership is openly lobbying for a new version of South Stream, which Gazprom has not committed to yet. This time, it could be the German Chancellor Angela Merkel who will feel the wrath of voters. Germany needs Nord Stream 2, and if Gazprom's chairman of the board, Alexander Mendvedev, 
is to be taken seriously, Nord Stream 3 as well. Luangu continues, quote, So, if she folds here to Trump's pressure, it will likely spell the end of her government within a year. Local anger over her immigration policy, as well as serving the EU rather than Germany first, puts her chancellorship on shaky ground. End quote. I can't call myself a close enough observer of German politics to know whether or not Luongo's you know, judgment here is completely correct, whether Merkel will really lose her power and whether her party's power will be lost in a year if they were to cut off this Nord Stream 2 pipeline. But I can say that this Nord Stream 2 fiasco seems to be playing on the same things that Russia and Putin's tentacles on social media and in you know, different political parties across the European continent, they seem to be doing the same thing. Whether or not it's Germany's best interest or the EU's to do this Nord Stream 2 deal. That became a problem in Bulgarian politics with this South Stream pipeline. And as Luongo pointed out, the Bulgarian government in power lost that power soon after. Luongo also points to problems that Germans have with immigration that haven't quite cost Merkel her job yet, but maybe these problems will get even worse if prices rise in Germany due to them having to buy gas from other sources, other sources than Russia. And it's interesting here to think about what might the counter-reaction to this look like. If we're going to take a step back and view European politics as a whole, we notice more extreme political ideologies coming in the fold on the left and the right. If we're going to look at, you know, Greece and Italy, if we're going to look at Poland, we just observed some of the problems in Austrian politics leaning towards the right. Well, if this immigration problem becomes even more divisive over the next few years, and if prices tend to rise for energy, we might see more of the same in Germany. And if Putin's going to have any influence on that, we might have an idea of what direction German politics might head in. It might begin to look more like Austria, or it might begin to look more like any of the other European countries that Putin has had a hand in disrupting. One of my favorite words for today's podcast for anyone who's been keeping track. But that's really what's going on here. Putin's able to not only disrupt politics on the internet, and using back channels to fund different divisive parties around the continent? Well, Gazprom's out in the open, and Gazprom seems to be promoting and bolstering the same activities that are happening in secret. As we've just heard, there's preparatory measures being taken for a Nord Stream 3. That's something we'll keep an eye on here, and we'll keep an eye on the developments with Nord Stream 2 as well. Before signing off, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for listening to today's audio. Please subscribe, rate, leave a review. Visit www.politicaldominoes.com. Check out some of our sourcing for the first two episodes that I mentioned. Hope that we will be putting out more and more content over the course of 2018 and in the near future. Good day and... Help stop all this disruption. Please, someone should.